Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 2 of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 2. The fresh night had a smell of soil, of turned up sods like a grave, an association particularly odious to a sailor by its idea of confinement and narrowness. Yes, even when he has given up the hope of being buried at sea about the last hope a sailor gives up consciously after he has been, as it does happen, decoyed by some chance into the toils of the land. A strong, grave-like sniff. The ditch by the side of the road must have been freshly dug in front of the cottage. Once clear of the garden, Fine gathered way like a racing cutter. What was a mile to him, or twenty miles? You think he might have gone shrinkingly on such an errand, but not a bit of it. The force of pedestrian genius, I suppose. I raced by his side in a mood of profound self-derision and infinitely vexed with that minx. Because, dead or alive, I thought of her as a minx. I smiled incredulously at Marlowe's ferocity, but Marlowe, pausing with a whimsically retrospective air, never flinched. Yes, yes, even dead. And now you are shocked. You see, you are such a chivalrous, masculine beggar. But there is enough of the woman in my nature to free my judgment of women from glamorous reticency. And then why should I upset myself? A woman is not necessarily either a doll or an angel to me. She is a human being, very much like myself. And I have come across too many dead souls lying, so to speak, at the foot of high, unscalable places for a merely possible dead body at the bottom of a quarry to strike my sincerity dumb. The cliff-like face of the quarry looked forbiddingly impressive. I will admit that fine and I hung back for a moment before we made a plunge off the road into the bushes growing in a broad space at the foot of the towering limestone wall. These bushes were heavy with dew. There were also concealed mud holes in there. We crept and tumbled and felt about with our hands along the ground. We got wet, scratched and plastered with mire all over our nether garments. Fine fell suddenly into a strange cavity, probably a disused lime kiln. His voice, uplifted in grave distress, sounded more than usually rich, solemn and profound. This was the comic relief of an absurdly dramatic situation. While hauling him out, I permitted myself to laugh aloud at last. Fine, of course, didn't. I need not tell you that we found nothing after a most conscientious search. Fine even pushed his way into a decaying shed half buried in dew-soaked vegetation. He struck matches, several of them too, as if to make absolutely sure that the vanished girlfriend of his wife was not hiding there. The short flares illuminated his grave, immovable countenance while I let myself go completely and laughed in peals. I asked him if he really and truly supposed that any sane girl would go and hide in that shed, and if so, why? Disdainful of my mirth, he merely muttered his basso profundo thankfulness that we had not found her anywhere about there. Having grown extremely sensitive, an effective irritation to the tonalities, I may say, of this affair, I felt that it was only an imperfect, reserved thankfulness, with one eye still on the possibilities of the several ponds in the neighbourhood. And I remember I snorted, I positively snorted, at that poor fine. What really jarred upon me was the rate of his walking. Differences in politics, in ethics, and even in aesthetics need not arouse angry antagonism. One's opinion may change, one's tastes may alter. 
In fact, they do. One's very conception of virtue is at the mercy of some felicitous temptation which may be sprung on one any day. All these things are perpetually on the swing. But a temperamental difference, temperament being immutable, is the parent of hate. That's why religious quarrels are the fiercest of all. My temperament in matters pertaining to solid land is the temperament of leisurely movement, of deliberate gait, and there was that little fine pounding along the road in a most offensive manner, a man wedded to thick-soled laced boots, whereas my temperament demands thin soles of the lightest kind. Of course, there could never have been question of friendship between us, but under the provocation of having to keep up with his pace, I began to dislike him actively. I begged sarcastically to know whether he could tell me if we were engaged in a farce or in a tragedy. I wanted to regulate my feelings, which I told him were in an unbecoming state of confusion. But Fine was as impervious to sarcasm as a turtle. He tramped on, and all he did was to ejaculate, twice out of his deep chest, vaguely, doubtfully, I am afraid, I am afraid. This was tragic. The thump of his boots was the only sound in a shadowy world. I kept by his side with a comparatively ghostly silent tread. By a strange illusion, the road appeared to run up against a lot of low stars at no very great distance, but as we advanced, new stretches of whitey-brown ribbon seemed to come up from under the black ground. I observed as we went by the lamp in my parlour in the farmhouse still burning, but I did not leave Fine to run in and put it out. The impetus of his pedestrian excellence carried me past in his wake before I could make up my mind. "'Tell me, Fine,' I cried. "'You don't think the girl was mad, do you?' He answered nothing. Soon the lighted, beacon-like window of the cottage came into view. Then Fine uttered a solemn, "'Certainly not,' with profound assurance. But immediately after he added a "'Very highly strung young person indeed,' which unsettled me again. "'Was it a tragedy?' "'Nobody ever got up at six o'clock in the morning to commit suicide,' I declared crustily. "'It's unheard of.' This is a farce. As a matter of fact, it was neither farce nor tragedy. Coming up to the cottage, we had a view of Mrs. Fine inside, still sitting in the strong light at the round table with folded arms. It looked as though she had not moved her very head by as much as an inch since we went away. She was amazing in a sort of unsubtle way. Crudely amazing, I thought. Why crudely? I don't know. Perhaps because I saw her then in a crude light. I mean this, materially, in the light of an unshaded lamp. Our mental conclusions depend so much on momentary physical sensations, don't they? If the lamp had been shaded, I should perhaps have gone home after expressing politely my concern at the fine's unpleasant predicament. Losing a girlfriend in that manner is unpleasant. It is also mysterious. So mysterious that a certain mystery attaches to the people to whom such a thing does happen. Moreover, I had never really understood the fines. He, with his solemnity, which extended to the very eating of bread and butter, she with that air of detachment and resolution, in breasting the commonplace current of their unexciting life, in which the cutting of bread and butter appeared to me, by a long way, the most dangerous episode. Sometimes I amused myself by supposing that, to their minds, this world of ours must be wearing a perfectly overwhelming aspect, and that their heads contained respectively awfully serious and extremely desperate thoughts, and trying to imagine what an exciting time they must be having of it in the inscrutable depths of their being.
This last was difficult to a volatile person. I am sure that to the fines I was a volatile person, and the amusement in itself was not very great. But still, in the country, away from all mental stimulants, my efforts had invested them with a sort of amusing profundity. But when Fine and I got back into the room, then, in the searching domestic glare of the lamp, inimical to the play of fancy, I saw these two stripped of every vesture it had amused me to put on them for fun. Queer enough they were. Is there a human being that isn't that, more or less secretly? But whatever their secret, it was manifest to me that it was neither subtle nor profound. They were a good, stupid, earnest couple, and very much bothered. They were that, with the usual unshaded crudity of average people. There was nothing in them that the lamplight might not touch without the slightest risk of indiscretion. Directly we had entered the room, Fine announced the result by saying nothing in the same tone as at the gate on his return from the railway station. And, as then, Mrs Fine uttered an incisive, "'It's what I said,' which might have been the veriest echo of her words in the garden." We three looked at each other as if on the brink of a disclosure. I don't know whether she was vexed at my presence. It could hardly be called intrusion, could it? Little Fine began it. It had to go on. We stood before her, plastered with the same mud, Fine was a sight, scratched by the same brambles, conscious of the same experience. Yes, before her. And she looked at us with folded arms, with an extraordinary fullness of assumed responsibility. I addressed her. You don't believe in an accident, Mrs. Fine, do you? She shook her head in curt negation, while, caked in mud and inexpressibly serious-faced, Fine seemed to be backing her up with all the weight of his solemn presence. Nothing more absurd could be conceived. It was delicious, and I went on in deferential accents. Am I to understand, then, that you entertained the theory of suicide? I don't know that I am liable to fits of delirium, but by a sudden and alarming aberration while waiting for her answer, I became mentally aware of three trained dogs dancing on their hind legs. I don't know why, perhaps because of the pervading solemnity. There's nothing more solemn on earth than a dance of trained dogs. She has chosen to disappear, that's all. In these words, Mrs. Fine answered me. The aggressive tone was too much for my endurance. In an instant I found myself out of the dance, and down on all fours, so to speak, with liberty to bark and bite. "'The devil she has!' I cried. "'Has chosen to. Like this, all at once, anyhow, regardless. I've had the privilege of meeting that reckless and brusque young lady, and I must say that with her air of an angry victim.' "'Precisely,' Mrs. Fine said, very unexpectedly, like a steel trap going off. I stared at her. How provoking she was!' So I went on to finish my tirade. She struck me at first as the most inconsiderate, wrong-headed girl that I ever... Why should a girl be more considerate than anyone else, more than any man, for instance, inquired Mrs. Fine, with a still greater assertion of responsibility in her bearing. Of course, I exclaimed at this, not very loudly, it is true, but forcibly. Were, then, the feelings of friends, relations, and even of strangers to be disregarded? I asked Mrs. Fine if she did not think it was a sort of duty to show elementary consideration, not only for the natural feelings, but even for the prejudices of one's fellow creatures. Her answer knocked me over. Not for a woman. Just like that. I confess that I went down flat. 
and while in that collapsed state I learned the true nature of Mrs. Fine's feminist doctrine. It was not political, it was not social. It was a knock-me-down doctrine, a practical individualistic doctrine. You would not thank me for expounding it to you at large. Indeed, I think that she herself did not enlighten me fully. There must have been things not fit for a man to hear. But shortly, and as far as my bewilderment allowed me to grasp its naive atrociousness, it was something like this, that no consideration, no delicacy, no tenderness, no scruples should stand in the way of a woman who, by the mere fact of her sex, was the predestined victim of conditions created by men's selfish passions, their vices and their abominable tyranny, from taking the shortest cut towards securing for herself the easiest possible existence. She had even the right to go out of existence without considering anyone's feelings or convenience, since some women's existences were made impossible by the short-sighted baseness of men. I looked at her sitting before the lamp at one o'clock in the morning, with her mature, smooth-cheeked face of masculine shape, robbed of its freshness by fatigue, and her eyes dimmed by this senseless vigil. I looked also at Fine. The mud was drying on him. He was obviously tired. The weariness of solemnity. But he preserved an unflinching, endorsing gravity of expression, endorsing it all as became a good, convinced husband. Oh, I see, I said. No consideration. Well, I hope you like it. They amused me beyond the wildest imaginings of which I was capable. After the first shock, you understand, I recovered very quickly. The order of the world was safe enough. He was a civil servant, and she his good and faithful wife. But when it comes to dealing with human beings, anything, anything may be expected. So even my astonishment did not last very long. How far she developed and illustrated that conscienceless and austere doctrine to the girlfriends who were mere transient shadows to her husband, I could not tell. Any length, I supposed. And he looked on, acquiesced, approved, just for that very reason, because these pretty girls were but shadows to him. Oh, most virtuous fine. He cast his eyes down. He didn't like it but I eyed him with hidden animosity, for he had got me to run after him under somewhat false pretenses. Mrs. Fine had only smiled at me very expressively, very self-confidently. Oh, I quite understand that you accept the fullest responsibility, I said. I am only the ridiculous person in this, this, I don't know how to call it, performance. However, I've nothing more to do here, so I'll say good night or good morning, for it must be past one. But before departing in common decency, I offered to take any wires they might write. My lodgings were nearer the post office than the cottage, and I would send them off the first thing in the morning. I supposed they would wish to communicate, if only to the disposal of the luggage with the young lady's relatives. Fine, he looked rather downcast by then, thanked me, and declined. There is really no one, he said, very grave. No one, I exclaimed. Practically, said Kurt, Mrs. Fine and my curiosity was aroused again. Ah, I see, an orphan. Mrs. Fine looked away weary and sombre, and Fine said, yes, impulsively, and then qualified the affirmative by the quaint statement, to a certain extent. I became conscious of a languid, exhausted embarrassment, 
bowed to Mrs. Fine, and went out of the cottage, to be confronted outside its door by the bespangled, cruel revelations of the immensity of the universe. The night was not sufficiently advanced for the stars to have paled, and the earth seemed to me more profoundly asleep, perhaps because I was alone now. Not having Fine with me to set the pace, I let myself drift rather than walk in the direction of the farmhouse. To drift is the only reposeful sort of motion, ask any ship if it isn't, and therefore consistent with thoughtfulness. And I pondered, how is one an orphan to a certain extent? No amount of solemnity could make such a statement other than bizarre. What a strange condition to be in. Very likely one of the parents only was dead. But no, it couldn't be, since Fine had said just before that there was really no one to communicate with. No one. And then, remembering Mrs. Fine's snappy, practically, my thoughts fastened upon that lady as a more tangible object of speculation. I wondered, and wondering, I doubted, whether she really understood herself the theory she had propounded to me. Everything may be said, indeed ought to be said, providing we know how to say it. She probably did not. She was not intelligent enough for that. She had no knowledge of the world. She had got hold of words as a child might get hold of some poisonous pills and play with them for dear tiny little marbles. No, the domestic slave daughter of Carly and Anthony and the little fine of the civil service, that flower of civilization, were not intelligent people. They were commonplace, earnest, without smiles and without guile. But he had his solemnities and she had her reveries, her lurid, violent, crude reveries and I thought with some sadness that all these revolts and indignations, all these protests, revulsions of feelings, pangs of suffering and of rage, expressed but the uneasiness of sensual beings trying for their share in the joys of form, colour, sensations, the only riches of our world of senses. A poet may be a simple being, but he is bound to be various and full of wiles, ingenious and irritable. I reflected on the variety of ways the ingenuity of the late bard of civilization would be able to invent for the tormenting of his dependents. Poets, not being generally foresighted in practical affairs, no vision of consequences would restrain him. Yes, the Fines were excellent people, but Mrs. Fine wasn't the daughter of a domestic tyrant for nothing. There were no limits to her revolt. But they were excellent people, it was clear that they must have been extremely good to that girl whose position in the world seemed somewhat difficult, with her face of a victim, her obvious lack of resignation, and the bizarre status of orphan to a certain extent. Such were my thoughts, but in truth I soon ceased to trouble about all these people. I found that my lamp had gone out, leaving behind an awful smell. I fled from it up the stairs and went to bed in the dark, my slumbers, I suppose the one good in pedestrian exercise, confounded is that it helps our natural callousness, my slumbers were deep, dreamless and refreshing. My appetite at breakfast was not affected by my ignorance of the facts, motives, events and conclusions. I think that to understand everything is not good for the intellect. A well-stocked intelligence weakens the impulse to action, an overstocked one leads gently to idiocy. But Mrs. Fine's individualist woman doctrine, naively unscrupulous, flitted through my mind. The salad of unprincipled notions she put into these girlfriends' heads. 
good, innocent creature, worthy wife, excellent mother of the strict governess type. She was as guileless of consequences as any determinist philosopher ever was. As to honour, you know, it's a very fine medieval inheritance which women never got hold of. It wasn't theirs. Since it may be laid as a general principle that women always get what they want, we must suppose they didn't want it. In addition, they are devoid of decency. I mean, masculine decency. Cautiousness, too, is foreign to them, the heavy, reasonable cautiousness which is our glory. And if they had it, they would make of it a thing of passion, so that its own mother, I mean the mother of cautiousness, wouldn't recognise it. Prudence with them is a matter of thrill, like the rest of sublunary contrivances. Sensation at any cost is their secret device. All the virtues are not enough for them. They want also all the crimes for their own. And why? Because in such completeness there is power, the kind of thrill they love most. Do you expect me to agree to all this? I interrupted. No, it isn't necessary, said Marlowe, feeling the check to his eloquence, but with a great effort at amiability. You need not understand it. I continue. With such disposition, what prevents women to use the phrase an old boatswain of my acquaintance applied descriptively to his captain, what prevents them from coming on deck and playing hell with the ship generally is that something in them, precise and mysterious, acting both as restraint and as inspiration, their femininity, in short, which they think they can get rid of by trying hard but can't and never will. Therefore, we may conclude that, for all their enterprises, the world is and remains safe enough. Feeling, in my character of a lover of peace soothed by that conclusion, I prepared myself to enjoy a fine day. And it was a fine day, a delicious day, with a horror of the infinite veiled by the splendid tent of blue. A day innocently bright, like a child with a washed face, fresh like an innocent young girl, suave in welcoming one's respects, like, like a Roman prelate. I love such days. They are perfection for remaining indoors, and I enjoyed it temperamentally in a chair, my feet up on the sill of the open window, a book in my hands, and the murmured harmonies of wind and sun in my heart, making an accompaniment to the rhythms of my author. Then, looking up from the page, I saw outside a pair of grey eyes, thatched by ragged yellowy-white eyebrows, gazing at me solemnly over the toes of my slippers. There was a grave, furrowed brow surmounting that portentous gaze, a brown tweed cap set far back on the perspiring head. "'Come in!' I cried as heartily as my sinking heart would permit. After a short but severe scuffle with his dog at the outer door, Fine entered. I treated him without ceremony and only waved my hand towards a chair. Even before he sat down, he gasped out, "'We've heard! Midday post!' gasped out. The grave, immovable fine of the civil service gasped. This was enough, you'll admit, to cause me to put my feet to the ground swiftly. That fellow was always making me do things in subtle discord with my meditative temperament. No wonder that I had but a qualified liking for him. I said, with just a suspicion of jeering tone, of course, I told you last night on the road that it was a farce we were engaged in. He made the little parlour resound to its foundations with a note of anger, positively sepulchral in its depth of tone. Fast be hanged, she's bolted with my wife's brother, Captain Anthony. This outburst was followed by complete subsidence. 
He faltered miserably as he added from force of habit, The son of the poet, you know. A silence fell. Find several expressions with so many examples of varied consistency. This was the discomfiture of solemnity. My interest, of course, was revived. But hold on, I said, they didn't go together. Is it a suspicion, or does she actually say that... She's gone after him, stated Fine in comminatory tones, by previous arrangement. She confesses that much. He added that it was very shocking. I asked him whether he should have preferred them going off together, and on what ground he based that preference. This was sheer fun for me in regard of the fact that Fine's too was a runaway match which even got into the papers in its time because the late indignant poet had no discretion and sought to avenge this outrage publicly in some absurd way before a bewigged judge. The dejected gesture of little Fine's hand disarmed my mocking mood, but I could not help expressing my surprise that Mrs. Fine had not detected at once what was brewing. Women were supposed to have an unerring eye. He told me that his wife had been very much engaged in a certain work. I had always wondered how she occupied her time. It was in writing. Like her husband, she too published a little book. Much later on, I came upon it. It had nothing to do with pedestrianism. It was a sort of handbook for women with grievances, and all women had them. A sort of compendious theory and practice of feminine free morality. It made you laugh at its transparent simplicity but that authorship was revealed to me much later. I didn't, of course, ask Fine what work his wife was engaged on, but I marvelled to myself at her complete ignorance of the world, of her own sex, and of the other kind of sinners. Yet where could she have got any experience? Her father had kept her strictly cloistered. Marriage with Fine was certainly a change, but only to another kind of claustration. You may tell me that the ordinary powers of observation ought to have been enough. Why, yes... But then, as she had set up for a guide and teacher, there was nothing surprising for me in the discovery that she was blind. That's quite an order. She was a profoundly innocent person, and it would not have been proper to tell her husband so. End of Part 1, Chapter 2, Section 2